When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Warfare. I'm your host, James Rogers, and it is 2022. The first month of the year is rocketing by, but I hope you've had a great start to the new year. We've got so many exciting episodes coming up that will take us all around the world. But this episode focuses back in on the UK in 1999, when the UK's first and only war crimes trial for murder perpetrated during the Holocaust took place. It's an extraordinary story that brings together the interwoven lives of two childhood friends. Tragically, one would be the main witness of the atrocities that their friend committed, and the other would be the accused war criminal. To tell us all about this history, we have the authors of a fascinating new book called The Ticket Collector from Belarus, an extraordinary true story of Britain's only war crimes trial. This is Mike Anderson and Neil Hansen. Together, they take us through their intense and deep investigation to unearth the truth behind this astonishing case. Hi, Mike and Neil. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you both doing today? Perfect. Really good. Yep. Excited about a, a new year. Yes. A new year and uh, a new book. Do we have any New Year's resolutions between us here? Sell more books is mine. <laughs> <laughs> Sell more books. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Good one. I think for me, it's about seeing the story through. It's my first book, but it's been a, you know, a real passion project. So it isn't just a book for me. It's come out of my soul. If you cut me in half, the story, you know, the words are in the middle of me, basically. Yes, I am really keen to get into your personal connection to this story and how you found out about this history as well. Let's start with a bit of a broader look at this, because today still, in 2022, we hear of former Nazis being put on trial, and we've had great episodes in the past with people like Eric Lichtblau on the Nazis next door, and, and how so many were able to, to restart their lives around the world, and are only now just being brought to justice. And, and in your work, between the two of you, you've uncovered an extraordinary true story of Britain's only war crimes trial, which took place back in 1999. And for me, the most astonishing thing is that it involves two childhood friends from Belarus. So take us back in this history to fully understand this story. Where is it that we should begin, Michael? Well, there's two starting points, really. I think the starting point for the story is the War Crimes Act, 1991. 
It was an extraordinary piece of legislation. It extended the jurisdiction of British courts to foreign jurisdictions. It enabled the country to prosecute foreigners who had killed foreigners in a foreign country, occupied by a foreign country. And it was the prosecution of crimes from well over 50 years ago. So to me, that was one of the starting points, this extraordinary new legislation that enabled Nazis to be prosecuted. As far as I'm concerned, you know, how did I get involved in it? I became friends with the junior prosecuting counsel on the case, which was in 1999, and he became a very good friend. So I followed the trial at the time, and it was 10 years later when we were talking about the trial that he gave me far more details about the horrors, about what Andrei Savonyuk had done, that he was included in the murder of 200 people, but was also involved, those are 200 people he actually killed himself, but actively involved in the killing of thousands of more. Wow. So this is something which right at that time is you became fascinated in and you had to delve in further. So tell us, who was Andre Savonyuk? It's one of the great things about this story, as you alluded to in the opening, that there is a real Cain and Abel element to this story. It isn't just a dry legal or historical document. This is a gripping human story about two childhood friends who grew up in a place called Domoshevo in what is now Belarus, was then part of Poland. And they played together as children. They grew apart a little during teenage years. And then when the Nazis invaded the country, they finished up on opposite sides. One saw his family completely wiped out, fled to the forests and fought with the partisans throughout the rest of the war, and eventually took part even in the liberation of Berlin with the Red Army. The other one became one of the Nazis' most willing collaborators and was involved in the killing of hundreds of Jews and other people. That is incredible. So take us back into this period, into this history. What year are we talking here? We're talking 1940, 1941. Is this the sort of period that we're talking in terms of history? I think the key point in terms of history was 1941, Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the East by Germany to Russia. And Domachevo, the town that we're talking about, where the action was set, was on exactly that border. The town was on the River Bug, which represented the border between occupied Poland, occupied by the Germans, and occupied Poland, occupied by the Russians. So on that first day of Operation Barbarossa, the army flooded into Domachevo. And on that day, the survival and the existence of the Jews suddenly became a question of whether or not they would survive or not. And the vast majority didn't. Out of a population of four to 5,000 Jews, only 13 survived. For Savonyuk, it was an opportunity. He was a man at the bottom of the pile, and suddenly he had the opportunity to stand up and become a policeman. And he did that, and he became an enthusiast Nazi. So this is someone at the bottom of society who was able to pull himself up because he would be ruthless on behalf of the Nazis. Now, one of the troubling things about this period, of course, is that when so many in that society are killed or sent off to concentration camps, it becomes very difficult afterwards to pin down who was actually responsible and what they did. So how is it that you were able to learn about Andre's crimes? The Soviet Union were very zealous in pursuing war criminals after the war. And they devoted great efforts to finding and tracking down Andrei Savonyuk. They sent people posing as farmers and uh, shopkeepers to actually live in Domoshevo and try and find some information about him. They took statements from people in the village. They established a substantial file of allegations against Savonyuk. But of course, because of the uh, sour relations between the Soviet Union and Britain and the West at the time, 
This information was not made available to Britain. And Britain had no idea that this guy at Savonia could actually come to Britain. He'd fought with the Waffen SS when he'd fled Domoszewo, but then because he'd been born in Poland, he managed to use his Polish birth certificate to demonstrate to the Poles that he was a patriotic Pole who'd simply been conscripted by the Nazis and forced to do labor for them. And so he joined the Free Polish Army, though he never actually took part in any fighting. And then at the end of the war, he was one of the quarter of a million Poles who were resettled to Britain when they were offered the option to come here rather than return to what was now communist Poland. So he came to Britain and became, for all intents and purposes, a member of British society. So for somebody who was very much a murderous killer, he was most definitely an endless survivor as well, turning his tricks to make sure that he could get out of any difficult situation. Mike, take us through these crimes that he's charged with. We say that he's responsible for killing over 200 Jews. Is this his role as a police officer, going through the community, finding those in hiding, sending them off to concentration camps? Or what do we mean by being responsible for the murder? If I can just go back to the first question, because it also relates to the second question that you've asked. This is the interesting point, is that most people think that the Holocaust happened in concentration camps. But in the East, where two million Jews died in areas that were occupied by Germany in Russia and its occupied territories, most people were actually killed in their own towns. So what happened was that the Germans and the Nazis developed a system. So they built ghettos inside their own towns. And therefore, the murders happened largely within their own towns rather than being deported to concentration camps. So it was a very different formula, the way that they did it. So that's one point that I'd like to clarify, but it's also why I wrote this book, or I wanted to write this book, is because of that misconception that people do think about concentration camps. As far as the murders or the crimes of Savoniak, a lot of people would assume that Savoniak would be accused of genocide. Now, the problem about that is that there isn't a crime of genocide that is available to British courts. There is only the crimes of manslaughter and murder, and therefore Savoniak was accused of murder. Now, again, under case law, you can't accuse people of murdering four people. You can only be accused of murdering one person. So oddly, even though in this crime they had the crimes of 20 murders, they were actually captured under four single charges of murder. And most of those people who were killed were persons unknown. How were they selected? Well, because of evidence. They needed to get really good evidence in order for the charges to be stuck. If you think about it, it was very difficult to successfully prosecute people for murders that happened nearly 60 years ago, thousands of miles away, where there was no physical evidence of persons unknown. So the real acid test for these particular charges was that there had to be evidence, and the only evidence that was available was testimony, testimony of witnesses. And it was those witnesses who came to the Old Bailey in 1999 who testified against Savoniak on specific charges of murder. It raises the most interesting moral questions as well. It was something that defence tried to use in the trial. Is it possible for people 60 years after the event, how much can their recollections be trusted? If they say, I saw this person doing it, are they really stating their experience? Or like all of us, we all know, we dress up our uh, best anecdotes, we polish them over the years lovingly and make them better and better. And our, our own role usually becomes more and more impressive the more times we retell the tale. Were these people from Domoshevo actually saying what they'd seen or were they relating gossip, as the uh, defence tried to argue, that had simply been circulating in Domoshevo for the last 57 years? And I think one of the most extraordinary things about this, and, you know, there is a famous quote, isn't there, the death of millions is a statistic, the death of an individual is a human tragedy. 
And I think the most interesting thing for me, and Mike was uh, much earlier to the party than I was on this book, the most interesting thing, reading his research he'd already done when I became involved, was how gripping the human stories were, what extraordinary characters there were in the story, what remarkable locations, and also, strangely, what a lot of humour, a surprising amount of humour there is in what was otherwise a very grim story. So some of the things that I found particularly interesting, I've never been to Belarus, I suspect most of your listeners never have. This is almost 10 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and yet Belarus is really still the Soviet Union in miniature. There are four women in white coats worked in the local food shop because it was the duty of the state to provide employment for everyone. But just like in those uh, famous scenes we see from Soviet times, in the whole of a food shop with shelves stretching the entire length of the shop, there was only a single small piece of cheese up for these four women to sell to anybody who came in when the jurors made their visit there. The in-tourist hotel in Brest-Liftovsk is one of those hotels you think only exist in Hollywood movies and nightmares. The windows are all cracked, there are no plugs in any of the sinks or basins, and if you used up the last of a toilet roll, you had to take the empty cardboard tubes to reception before they'd issue you with a new one. So there's all this incredible colour and extraordinary uh, things going on around it, and the characters in the, in the book, as Mike will tell you, are simply remarkable. Well, tell us about a few of these characters then, because what I'm taking from here is that British war crimes experts, lawyers, went over to Belarus to find this evidence, to go into this society, which by the sounds of it still largely remained closed into those same communities and were able to almost open the door to history. Yes, I mean, the uh, the personalities, as Neil says, are quite extraordinary. And this has taken me a long time to get to know the individuals. So I've got to know the barristers, both for the defence and the prosecution. I got to know the Nazi solicitors. I got to know journalists, academics. We got to know people who'd worked with Savonyuk at London Bridge Railway Station. We got to know all sorts of people, the policemen who arrested Savonyuk, all of these extraordinary people. And one thing I would say about them is that they were all willing to tell the story. You know, the Nazis solicitors, both of them, there were two of them, began the call by saying, I'm not going to say anything. And then I had to put the phone down after hours of conversation. So the personalities are quite something. But the way that we've written it is that you know, I studied history at university. And when I started learning about history, I thought that history was about events. And it's not. History is about people. And what this book tries to do is it tries to tell it through the people in the story. We've talked about Savonyuk. The person that we haven't talked about, really, it's Bluestein. Now, I went on a trip to Israel in the hope of finding Bluestein because he was utterly off the grid and there were reasons for that. And in fact, actually, he died. But I got to meet his family through one of many strokes of luck. And Bluestein was not only a Holocaust survivor, but the extraordinary thing about him was that he was also a hero. And when you follow his story, which covers over eight decades, and again, the parallel life of Zavonyuk, you get a real insight into the human story. And one of the things that stood out to me about that is that people think that the Holocaust was a story about six million dead Jewish souls. And it wasn't. The Holocaust is six million stories of individual souls. And what this book tries to do is to tell one of those six million stories. So Savonyak, we know, goes on his way to commit horrendous crimes and ends up somehow in the United Kingdom, living his life like nothing had happened during the war. What happens to Bluestein? Bluestein escapes the Nazis. They kill his entire family. He's the only member of his family to survive. And he flees into the forest. And he flees in such haste, he doesn't even have any shoes. And he's in a Polish forest in the middle of winter with just scraps of sacking to wrap around his feet. 
He escapes with a couple of other Jews. They survive somehow, almost starving many, many times. And eventually they link up with a group of partisans and began fighting against the Nazis, fighting back. And they were treated with great suspicion and even contempt by some Polish partisan groups who were quite strongly anti-Semitic themselves. But eventually they fell in with a group who supported them. And Bluestein became one of the heroes, one of the leaders of that organization. Along the way, he also rescued a little Jewish boy called Benny Kalina, who was found badly wounded by the Nazis lying at the side of the road. Benny, I don't think, knew exactly how old he was, but he was probably only nine or ten years old when he was found. And the leader of that partisan group said, oh, let him die. You know, they didn't have time to be sentimental. But Benzion insisted that there was a chance of saving him. He persuaded a surgeon to operate, remove the bullet, and Benny Kalina then survived, and he was uh, under Benzion's wing for the rest of the war. Then they lost touch with each other at the end of the war, but many, many years later in Israel, they reconnected and were bosom buddies for the rest of their lives after that. And again, that's a very moving part of the story. And so as the war came to an end, you said that Benzion Bluestein was one of those key people who went through to, to liberate Berlin, but then, of course, moves to the new state of Israel at this point. No, actually, that's not what happened. Interestingly, Bluestein was determined to find Benny Kalina. I think he saw in Benny Kalina, you know, his own younger brother and desperate to save him. So he'd been put him in safekeeping with another family and managed to travel back to Domachevo, which was not an easy journey by any measure. And the boy had disappeared. And he spent some time in Domachevo, not just looking for him, but trying to rebuild his life. And he suddenly realised, there is nothing to keep me here. My family are dead. My friends are dead. I'm virtually the only two that's left here. So I need to make a new life. And so therefore, he managed to get back to Germany, which again is another adventure that's told in the book, manages to get to Israel and builds a life there. Has a family, a very successful family, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And what this book tells you about is that existence, about how he restarted his life. And of course, the defining moment, as far as the plot is concerned, is when he's told that Savoniak is still alive. This is in the 1990s. Now, Bluestein thought that Savoniak was dead. Savoniak thought that Bluestein was dead. And so in 1999, they come together in the British courtroom against all expectation. If you've always wanted to know more about some of the key events that shaped the medieval period and the modern world, then Gone Medieval from History Hit is the podcast for you. From this... The king ordered all the Danish men who were in England to be killed because he'd heard a rumour that they were trying to topple him. They seemed to have been beheaded one by one in some kind of systematic manner. To this... The stakes are so high. Even when she first appears on the scene, Joan says, I've got one year to do this. So she knows that this is going to come to a sticky end. With a whole lot of this in between. The knightly class is a group of people who have been chosen by God. Armour is a physical proof that that's literally true. With guests lined up at the drawbridge, it's time to let them in and begin the feast for your ears that is Gone Medieval, the podcast from History Hit. Together, my co-host Dr Kat Jarman and I, Matt Lewis. We've gone medieval and we're waiting for you to join us. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And this is the point where worlds re-collide. These childhood friends coming back together in a room like I'm sure neither of them would ever expected when they used to play together. But tell us first, how was Savonyak tracked down? How did they find him and bring him to trial? It's one of the great examples of the uh, cock-up theory of history that for many years he remained undetected, even after the thawing of relations with the Soviet Union, when they actually supplied Britain with a list of 97 Nazi war criminals they suspected of being alive and in Britain. Because his name had been given the original Russian spelling, that Metropolitan Police files list all criminals under the first three letters of their surname. And since they had the wrong three initials for Sawaniak, he remained undetected. It was only when one of the researchers of the war crimes unit was in an archive in East Berlin, and he saw it spelt the Polish way, S-A-W, that he twigged, passed the word on, and eventually was tracked down. And for 25 years, he'd been working as a ticket collector at London Bridge Station. And you think of the millions of people who must have passed him every day, handed him their tickets, and never realised this man was in their midst. But finally, they identified him. He was living in a council flat in Bermondsey. And in 1996, the uh, police appeared on his doorstep. That is incredible. Yes. I mean, that's almost chilling, isn't it? Thinking that every day you could be walking past or having your ticket inspected by a, a Nazi war criminal. When was it that Bluestein found out? And how were they able to track him down to realise that he was someone who was going to be able to help bring Savonyak to justice? How did they find Bluestein? I assume that they used good old police mechanisms to try and find people who had survived from Domachevo, found out that one of the survivors lived in Israel and contacted him. But the interesting thing is that they couldn't just go up to him and say, we've got Savonyak, will you testify against him? They needed him to independently say who Savonyak was and what he did. So the Israeli police and some Scotland Yard policemen went to meet with him and wouldn't explain it precisely what they wanted, but they said it concerned what happened in Domachevo. And they got him to talk about what happened in Domachevo and some of the policemen that were involved in it. And there were many policemen in Domachevo, a growing number as the war evolved, who were involved not only in the murder of the Jewish population of the town, 
but also in Killing the Partisans. And so he talked extensively about lots of different people. And the irritating thing for them was that he didn't come out with the name of Savoniak. And so at the end of it, they were feeling rather frustrated. And they said, are you sure there isn't another policeman that you haven't thought about? And he said, of course. He said, I don't know why I didn't think about this. But the worst of all of these people was a man called Andre Savoniak. And one of the Israeli policemen jumped up out of his chair and shouted, yes. And Bluestein was shocked. And he said, why are you celebrating? They said, we have found him. He's in London and we want you to testify, but we needed you to name him before we could proceed with this. So this was their way of trying to mitigate bias as much as possible and to make sure that when this came up in court and Savonyakt was judged by a jury of his peers, that this would stand up and he'd be able to be sent down. Precisely. That's exactly it. And did they do this for every person that was brought in to testify against Savonyakt? The witnesses who still lived in Domashevo, none of whom were Jews, because of course the Jews had been almost entirely wiped out in Domashevo, but the witnesses there were asked pretty similar questions, you know, who were the Nazi collaborators, what did they do? Amusingly, when the defence tried to find people in Domashevo who would have a good word to say about Suwaniak in the hope of building a bit of a character for him, they couldn't find a single person who uh, spoke up in favour of him. In fact, all they found were they were besieged by people saying, I know about another murder he committed, he did this one over there, and so on. So they, they had to find people who had actually witnessed him killing people. There were hundreds of people around Domashevo who knew that Suwaniak had killed people, had even seen him herding people towards down the road of death, as it was called, towards the killing grounds in the sand hills where the Jews were slaughtered. But none of them had actually seen him. They'd seen him heard Jews down the road, they'd hear the sound of machine gun fire, and then he'd come back alone. But that wasn't enough evidence for the old Bailey for a court. And there were only two witnesses who could actually testify that they'd seen him killing people, the most crucial of which was a, a man called Fedor Zan, who lived in grinding poverty in Domashevo and was brought to London, who'd witnessed uh, Sawanya killing 15 women in a forest. And he lived in a place with no running water, no facilities whatsoever. And the QC who was in charge of him said that whenever he wasn't in the old Bailey, he was in a bath because he'd never seen hot running water before and never operated a shower. So uh, he was taking about six or seven baths a day during the course of the trial. But his evidence was absolutely crucial in establishing Sawaniak's guilt. And even then, the extraordinary thing was that if Sawaniak had taken his QC's advice and not taken the stand as a witness, he might still have got away with it. The evidence wasn't that strong, relied on the memory of people 57 years ago. But in fact, Sawaniak was so irate at the accusations that had been levelled against him, he took the stand in his own defence and made a complete horlicks of it and, uh, and absolutely destroyed whatever credibility he had with the court and with the jury. He even claimed things like there was no ghetto in Domashevo, the Jews were all his best friends, the Nazis never persecuted any Jews in Domashevo and so on. It's extraordinary stuff. And Mike unearthed, and he'll tell you how, but he unearthed the uh, the judge's transcripts from the trial, and the judge noted in the margin that he'd basically destroyed himself, Sonic. But the, the story of how Mike found the transcripts of the trial is a great story in itself. Yes, Mike, enlighten us. How did you get hold of this material? Sure. If I could just say that Neil has just talked about the fact that nobody was prepared to testify in favour of Savoniak in Domachevo. Now, that having no friends or supporters also extended to the UK because his solicitor tried to find people who would testify to the good personality of Savoniak in the UK. One would have thought that there would be some people who would say, yes, Savoniak was a nice chap, he was kind, he was thoughtful, he was considerate, but they couldn't find a single person who would testify. And his um, QC, his defence QC, said that in nearly all cases that he had dealt with, there was always one characteristic of one, any defendant that would stand out as being something that was positive. 
It might be that he was pleasant to his children. It might be that he was nice to his cat. It might be that he did something good for society. But for Savoniak, there was nothing. There were no redeeming characteristics whatsoever. And that's pretty damning after 25 years of being in the country. And this also includes at the British Rail, because Neil came across one of his colleagues. Neil, why don't you tell that story? Okay, I searched assiduously around London Bridge and eventually found somebody who was retired but had worked as the, the man who the ticket inspectors would bring the, the cash that they'd taken from customers without tickets to. And he said, of all the people who came in there, everybody would come in and they'd pass the time of day while he was checking the money and have a chat and so on. So one never once cracked a smile, never once spoke more than a couple of words to him and always came across, he said, as a, a surly, suspicious and strange character. So he wasn't entirely surprised when this unpleasant character he dealt with for 20 odd years turned out to have a, a few skeletons in the cupboard, to say the least. So take us back then, Mike. How did you come across these documents? Yes, so um, 1999, when you think about it, more or less before the internet became something that was really available. And so there were limited documents, well, there remain limited documents that I could actually access. And what happened was that the barrister in the case told me that nobody had knocked on his door to inquire about this extraordinary case. And he said that also the other barristers face exactly the same situation. Nobody seemed to be interested in the case, and it looked likely to become a footnote of legal history. So I thought, if nobody's going to tell this story, I'm going to do my best to assemble it, and I hope to tell it. But as a historian, no one always relies on primary documents or secondary documents, you know, things that you can rely on in order to build a credible story. And most of the story that I initially gathered was from the press, and there were one or two academic articles. And so that provided me with a skeleton, really, about what happened in the trial. But it wasn't enough. So I was desperate to find more of the court transcripts. And one judge actually gave me a couple of days of the trial documents that were available, but the rest had been mislaid. And everyone I spoke to, whether it was barristers, whether it was solicitors, whether it was the Kew National Archive, um, everyone that I spoke to didn't have the court transcripts. And that wasn't unusual. You know, there was so much paper that... It's still not unusual. I mean, you always hit a dead end at some point. You have to find a new way around. It's the frustrating thing but it makes it all the sweeter for when you do find a breakthrough. And this was the point of breakthrough because I normally walk to work through London. It's a couple of mile journey. And I took a bit of a detour because I noticed that there was a little dark alley and I saw somebody coming out to the end of it. I always thought it was a dead end. So I walked to the end of that alley and turned left. And it took me to another part of the bar that I hadn't been to. It's beautiful Georgian buildings. And as I was walking past it, I was looking at the names on the walls because these are sets of chambers of barristers. And above it, you know, there were the flats of dignitaries, judges, you know, other major QCs and so on. So I was just idly looking at these names and whose name should be on the wall, but the name of the judge, Sir Humphrey Potts. And you might think, oh, well, that's, that's quite interesting. But the thing that surprised me is that Sir Humphrey Potts had died several years before. So as I walked on, it suddenly occurred to me, aha, his wife, Lady Potts, must still be alive. So just on the off chance, I wrote to her and said, you know, my name is Mike Anderson. I'm very interested in the Savonia case. I know that your husband tried this case. Would it be possible for me to pop in and have a couple of words with you? And my hope was that there might be some diaries and notebooks and memories, whatever, you know, that might help me to build you know, the evidence that I really wanted in order to build a credible story. And she wrote back and said, why don't you come for dinner? She said, I'm rather elderly, so my two sons will be with me and we can have dinner and I can talk about this trial, which is indeed interesting. So we sat and we had dinner with rather a lot of wine. And at the end of it, we cut to the chase. And she said, well, you mentioned that you're interested in the Savonia case. 
what is your interest? So I explained that I dealt with the barristers and I'd come across you know, the story that I felt that there was a lot more to it. And I felt, having studied history, that there was an important story that needed to be told. And, and she nodded her head and she said, oh, that's interesting. She said, because Sir Humphrey felt that it was important too. And so I knew that he did keep some papers. I was quite taken aback. And I said, really? Where are they? She said, well, they're underneath the bed, in the trunk. And I said, well, what are they? She said, I've got no idea. I said, you know, he put the papers in the trunk, put it under the bed, and it's been undisturbed since then. And I said, would it be possible for me to have a look at them? She said, certainly. So your heart is going at this point, Mike. This is every historian's dream. This is the gold moment, the breakthrough moment. Exactly. My heart was beating. I was sweating. I almost felt that this was a dream. This couldn't be real. And her son went out, pulled out this trunk, dragged it into the room, put it on the table, went to open it. It was one of those moments. Clicked them, opened it. This trunk was full of papers, thousands of papers. And I just looked at them. It was almost as if golden light was coming out of this trunk. <laughs> and I was flabbergasted. And I said, can I come back to go through these papers? And she said, well, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, she was just as taken aback as I was. And she said, let me think about it. And then a day or two later, um, I heard from one of the sons and he said, we've talked about it. So Humphrey said that these papers are really important. One day somebody will come knocking on the door. She said, the person knocked on the door is you. So the papers are yours. So I went back. I took the trunk back in a black cab to my house. I opened them and I discovered that it contained every single word of the trial, annotated by the judge's handwriting, which he obviously did at the end of each night. And there were supporting documentation, you know, photographs, evidence items, instructions to the jury, instructions to the judge, witness statements, just treasures that I could never, ever expect to have. This is the depth you wanted. These are the primary documents you need. We'll gloss over the fact of whether or not these should have been kept in a trunk under the judge's bed, or perhaps in an archive somewhere. But for us here, hearing about this history, it's only because of that sort of detail that we can really get into this. So, so tell us about the trial then. How does this start to come to a head? What is it that, well, in the end, Savonyak is convicted of? There are four charges that were put against him at the start of the trial. Two were dismissed by the judge for insufficient evidence. And the two that remained were the charges of murder. One was the 15 murders witnessed by Fedor Zan. And I think that was probably the crucial one in the juror's mind. That was uh, quite a vivid description of Fedor Zan wandering through a forest, hearing some screaming, picking his way through the undergrowth and uh, concealing himself behind a tree, and then peering out to see Sawaniak with a submachine gun and 15 Jewish women who he forced to strip naked and then shot in the back and kicked into a, a trench that had been dug in the forest. That was the absolutely impactful statement. But again, the defence did their best to question whether he really could see that well at that distance, whether he actually had mistakenly identified him and so on. And as uh, we said earlier, had Sawaniak chosen to rest on his laurels, sit on his hands and not testify, he might well have got away with it. He wasn't by any means certain that the jury would convict on the evidence that they'd been presented with. But when he stood up and started to speak in his own defence, and his testimony was so ludicrous that the judge had to intervene at one point and tell the people in the gallery to stop sniggering and laughing at him, because it was basically absolute rubbish. You know, the Jews as a, the friends of the Nazis, the Nazis are the people who really looked after the Jews and so on. And it just became impossible for them to believe a word he'd said. And Sir Humphrey, in his waspish annotations on the transcript, said he'd basically shot himself in the foot. Bill Clegg, the lead QC for the defence, did say at that point he just resigned himself and thought, well, that's it, game over, it's going to go that way. 
And, you know, sometimes with trials, you wonder whether justice has been served. But as we've said, every person who had any dealings with Sawaniuk in the course of his life found out that he was a deeply unpleasant people. And even during the course of the trial, Sawaniuk had a walking stick, which he was supposed to need because he was too frail to manage without it. It was more often used as a weapon than as a walking aid during the course of the trial. And at one point, when a tabloid photographer turned up outside his flat in Bermondsey, Sawaniuk actually picked up a stone, hurled it at the photographer, and then ran down to where the stone had landed to pick it up and have another go. So clearly he wasn't quite as frail as was made out. So the jury went out, they gave it their full attention. They took three days to reach their verdict. and In the end, they returned a guilty verdict on both charges. And on a charge of murder, there is only one sentence available to the judge, and that's life imprisonment, which is what he was sentenced to. And in fact, he died in Norwich jail about seven or eight years later. Wow. He revealed his true personality, a uh, extremely violent liar as he stood on the stand. Mike, Neil, thank you so much for taking us through this history of Britain's only war crimes trial. Tell us, where can we read more about this? Where can we buy your new book? So you can buy it in the usual bookshops, independent bookshops, always a good place to start, we would say. But you can also buy it online in the usual way. It's coming out on the 20th of January. So that's available now really for pre-order. And we've been pleasantly surprised by the level of pre-orders and the interest in it and indeed the press interest. Even if you're not interested in the Holocaust, you're not on legal history or history in general, you will find a lot in this book to grab you. It is almost like a novel. It's uh, the characters, the locations, the sense of place, the narrative drive you get with it, I hope will read like a novel to anyone coming upon it. But it is a true story and a quite extraordinary one. Well, for the benefit of our listeners, the title is The Ticket Collector from Belarus, an extraordinary true story of Britain's only war crimes trial. Mike and Neil, thank you so much for your time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.